0: May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Pope Francis has given us some powerful images this week. While other statesmen were driving around in large limousines, he was in a little gray Fiat. In the midst of important meetings with the great and the good, the powerful and the wealthy, Congress at the UN, he took time to visit the homeless in Washington and to visit prisoners in Philadelphia, not just visit, speak to, spend time with. Those are powerful images, images that represent a kind of madness endemic to Christianity, a kind of nonsensical, counterintuitive form, a counterintuitive focus on the underprivileged, the nobodies, the weak, and the poor. As you know, Francis, Pope Francis speaks of such people constantly What's powerful is that he acts as if they really matter. And that attitude to the poor, that generosity to the poor, is instantly recognizable to us all as the core, the original ethos of Christianity. I want to take you back to some of those core convictions, those original practices that shaped the Christian tradition from the very beginning. And I want to touch on here with you a number of texts, both from the New Testament and from other early Christian literature. Of course, early Christianity grew straight out of Jewish soil. Its attitude to the poor is founded deep in Old Testament legislation, like the legislation about the Jubilee that we've just had read to us. And like the words of the prophets, who everywhere speak of the poor, a distinctively Jewish attitude in the ancient world. Concern for the poor, the widow, and the orphan, that is the economically vulnerable, the marginal, in ancient terms those without insurance, without social support. That is the distinctive mark of the Jewish tradition. But... Christianity speaks, as it were, with distinctive voice as well. It speaks Jewish, if you like, with a Christian accent. And I want us to explore a little bit of this distinctive Christian twist, which is our inheritance, our patrimony, our identity. And I want to do that in three ways. First, I want to talk about the Christian ethos of what we might call hyper generosity or reckless generosity. There's something distinctive about the way early Christians learned to give because they didn't just give, they gave lavishly and recklessly to a degree and in forms that went beyond the normal expectations of benefaction or gift. Ancient society was formed by bonds and networks of benefit and mutual support within families, among neighbors, in cities, and in the Roman Empire as a whole. But it was always wise, of course, to give discriminately, thoughtfully, to give appropriately to suitable recipients who would enter into reciprocal exchange. Common advice of philosophers and of ordinary everyday life was give lavishly, but carefully to worthy or to fitting recipients. Not so among the Christians. From the collections of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain, and right on through many strands of early Christian discourse, there's an extraordinary emphasis on forms of giving which are uncalculating, unconditioned, reckless, hypergenerous. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From anyone who takes away your coat, don't withhold your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if if anyone takes away your goods, don't ask for them again. So Luke records Jesus' teaching, a notable compilation of what in the ancient world, were slightly mad instructions. Paul, as you know, doesn't often refer directly to the teaching of Jesus, but he urges something very similar. Bless those who persecute you, he says. Don't return evil for evil. Attend to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality even to strangers. Or We could go to another very different stream of the Christian tradition, the Jewish-Christian text of the late 1st century called the the Didache. Give to everyone who asks. Don't ask for anything back. For the Father wants everyone to be given something from the gracious gifts that he himself provides. So in these different ways, these different texts, different social-cultural contexts, you see the common ethos emerging of a kind of exceptional, counterintuitive generosity, both in giving and in their refusal to retaliate, Christians learn to flout the the norms of the ordinary discriminating gift, the calculated generosity. Now here's how Aristides, a second century apologist for Christianity, describes what this looks like in practice, how Christians actually live. The love of one another, he says, embraces widows and orphans, while he who has gives to him who has not, without boasting about it. When one of their poor people dies, they club together to fund, his, to fund his burial. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his need. And if it's possible to redeem him, they set him free. And if there's any among them who is poor or needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. Let's halt on that a minute. If there's anyone who's poor or needy, there is no spare food. They fast for two or three days in order to supply the lack of food. This is the poor giving to the poor. They don't have spare food. They don't have a pantry stocked with extra goods. If somebody's poor, they don't, as it were, dip into their pockets for their spare cash, pull out a checkbook to pay from a large bank account. They don't have anything themselves either. So they go without food. They fast for two or three days, saving their food to give to another. This is the generosity of the widow's mite. The generosity, extraordinary generosity, that you find among the poor, giving to the poor, as I've witnessed in India and Pakistan and Mozambique, and indeed among working class Christians in the northeast of England. This is not the big benefactor who gives lavishly huge sums of money and then has an inscription put up to honor him. This is, what goes, this is the generosity that goes under the radar. There's no photo shot, there's no, there's no memory of it, but it's deeply sacrificial, quiet, unnoticed, but exceptional. Now you might ask, should ask, is this just what Aristides says or is it what early Christians actually did? And we have an interesting and important confirmation from a hostile critic of Christianity called Lucian, satirist, sent everybody up who loved criticizing everyone and he says, you know, I want to tell you the story of a man called Peregrinus, Peregrinus Proteus. Who, Lucian says, well, he pretended to be a Christian, and he lived off Christian generosity and was supported both in and out of prison. That's typical of the Christian, says Lucian. I quote, if any charlatan or trickster comes among them, he quickly acquires sudden wealth by imposing upon simple people. Now, maybe Peregrinus was a genuine Christian, or maybe he wasn't. There is, early Christians knew, a danger in their ethos of what Lucian calls simplicity. The danger of being taken for a ride. The Didache says, you know, if a prophet comes to stay with you, because we all have to give hospitality to traveling prophets, this is in the first century, put them up, by all means put them up, Well, for two days. On the third day, they can be asked politely to leave town. I'm only staying here for two days. If they demand a meal in the spirit, you know they're a false prophet. So Didache comes from a time where Christian travelers could arrive without introduction and could exploit an ethic of uncritical, uncritical hospitality. They could, as it were, pretend conversion even to desire out of their desire for access to Christian resources. It was hard to tell the difference between a Christian teacher worthy of a good meal and what the Didache calls a Christ merchant, someone happy to sponge off the community for as long as he could. Christians were aware of that danger There's some instructions as to how to deal with it in 2 Thessalonians and in 1 Timothy 5, which talks about the support of widows. But that these anxieties and tensions arise is necessary only because the basic Christian impulse was to give first and to ask questions later. It's what the Shepherd of Hermas, another early Christian text, calls simplicity. There's that word simplicity again. Hermas is told, take what you've earned through the labors that God has given you and give simply to those in need, not wavering about to whom you should give something and to whom not. He says, it's the recipients who will give an account to God. If they're in real hardship, you've done a good thing. If they weren't in real hardship and they received out of hypocrisy, well, they'll answer to God. It matters to the early church and it matters to us to give to the poor even if in the process we sometimes give to charlatans and to the undeserving because recklessness is part of our Christian DNA. The second thing I want to bring out here is underlying, what underlay, one of the things that underlay this recklessness was a deep suspicion of wealth a deep suspicion of wealth it's perhaps one of the greatest blind spots in western Christianity that we don't share that suspicion I was going to a friend's house a few years ago and he'd written a very very good book on uh, New Testament ethics and it had chapters on many really significant topics in Christian ethics like pacifism, divorce, sexuality, and I said, why didn't you write a chapter on wealth? He was driving me to his house at that point, and there was a long pause, and he said, well, when you get to my house, you might understand why. It wasn't a particularly exceptional house by American middle-class standards, but he felt embarrassed at that point and I cast no stones at him. The embarrassment is mine as well. It's an indication that we perhaps don't feel as much suspicion and anxiety about wealth as we might do. From the beginning, the early Christian tradition regarded wealth with, at worst, outright hostility, at best, suspicion. There were all those sayings from Jesus, his critique of, the, of wealth and the wealthy that made very uncomfortable hearing to wealthier members of the early church as they make uncomfortable hearing to the wealthy today. Woe to the rich. Ouch. Remember Dives and Lazarus? Dives just means, of course, rich man. Remember Jesus' instruction to the rich young man to sell all that he had and give the proceeds to the poor? Remember his saying that it was easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? In and beyond these sayings of Jesus, there's a deep early Christian suspicion of wealth as a phenomenon of this world which has nothing to do with the wealth of the world to come. More than that, is liable to impede and undermine Christian discipleship. It's a kind of eschatological disparagement of wealth, a deep anxiety that money or possessions represent an investment in this age, a form of capital that stands in contrast to the true capital of treasure in heaven. The apocalyptic dualisms of early Christianity, the light and dark that this age and the age to come, lent themselves to this suspicion of material wealth. And that was often reinforced in early Christianity by the awareness that wealthy Christians lived on the edge of Christian communities and were quick to abandon the faith when it became socially costly to associate with the church. Think of the comments on the wealthy in 1 Timothy 6, good evidence of this phenomenon. Instructions are here given to those who are rich in the present age. Those who are rich in the present age. That phrase already evokes a contrast, what 1 Timothy calls the future. That is to say, the question is, where do you put your treasure? Here or there? Wealth, says 1 Timothy, is unnecessary. If we have food and clothing, we'll be content with these. It's also, in the larger scheme of things, temporary. We've brought nothing into the world and we'll take nothing out of it. More seriously, though, it constitutes a kind of erroneous investment. The true investment is to set one's hopes on God. Wealth is a dangerous distraction. And it's associated here and elsewhere in the New Testament not only with the normal vices of wealth, which everyone talked about in the ancient world, that is, pride and self-indulgence, and luxury, obsessive greed, but also with a tendency to, quote, wander away from the faith. The rich may be tolerated in the church so long as they're rich in good deeds, only on those terms. That is to say, if they're generous towards others. But if they don't distribute their wealth in these ways, it's clear they've not grasped hold of what the text calls life that is really life. The life of the future. Life that is really life. All those people who sell us life insurance, is that the life that's really life? All those people who Encourage us to store as much of our wealth as possible in our pension pots so that we have a lifetime pension. Is that really life? The real life? The life that counts? What you do with your money, says the New Testament, says everything about you, where you belong, where your treasure is, there will your heart also. The way to figure wealth then is as something only to be welcomed if it's deployed in giving to the poor. The shepherd of Hermes, to come back to that text, says we live in two cities, this city and the city to come, and you have to decide where you're going to put your investments. If you invest in property here, It'll come a time when you have to choose which law and which law do you follow. Instead of fields, here it says, purchase souls that have been afflicted. Take care of widows and orphans and don't neglect them. Spend your wealth and all your furnishing for such fields, goods, and houses as you'll find in, this, in your, own, your own real city when you return to it. I like that American expression, real estate. Which is your real estate? Where's your home? Third motif I want to point to is the motif of giving to the poor as the expression of a whole theology of gift. What is wealth? Well, we say it's my possessions. No. My belongings? Wrong answer. My private property? Christian has nothing that is private and no property in the true sense. What do I mean? I mean, everything that we call our property, our possessions or our belongings, is first of all given to us. And it is given to us so that it may be given on to others. The New Testament, of course, speaks much of the imitation of God. Be merciful as your Heavenly Father is merciful. But more than the imitation, what it talks about Is the passing forward, the passing on of what we ourselves are given, as if we are the conduit for something that is not our own, paying it forward. There's a famous reference that the church historian Eusebius makes to all the people who were supported by the Roman church in the second century. 46 presbyters, 7 deacons, 7 sub-deacons, 42 acolytes, 52 exorcists, readers and doorkeepers. Sounds like a staff even bigger than Asbury. Over 1,500 widows and persons in distress, all of whom are supported by, and we expect him to say, all of whom are supported by Crispus, by Bishop Maximus, By X and Y and Y and Z, whose names you can see on a big inscription plate at the church in Rome, the class of, shall we say, year 168. All of whom, he says, are supported by the grace and loving kindness of the Master, Christ. What a striking expression. All this material support is notably attributed to the grace and loving kindness of Christ. It passes over in silence the human benefactors who had paid, no doubt, into the church's coffers. It's as if the human givers were merely agents of divine gifts and the whole church immediately dependent on its divine benefactor. Now that, of course, is the way that Paul configures gift. Perhaps the most profound early Christian reflection and New Testament reflection on gift comes when Paul describes the Jerusalem collection in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And he makes great pains of pointing out that the charis, which means gift or favor, the collection that he's drawing from the Corinthian church, is but the expression and manifestation of the charis of God. He starts 2 Corinthians 8 by talking about the example of the Macedonians. And we expect him to say, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, of the generosity of the Macedonians. No. What does he actually say? I want you to know, brothers and sisters, of the grace of God given to the Macedonians. It's only on that basis that he can explain how they gave so richly out of their great poverty. The grace of God and the grace of the Christ gift is what energizes, enables, equips Christians to pass on that caris, that grace, in generous giving to one another. It's grace in creation, but more particularly the grace of the Christ gift. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that because he was rich, he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. I translated it because he was rich, because I think what Paul is talking about is richness in the sense of generosity. Because Christ is rich in his generous divine nature, he became poor so that we might become rich. Rich not materially, of course, but rich in the same thing. Rich in generosity. Rich in the spirit of giving. Rich in an ethos, an attitude towards the world that gives to the poor. In other words, in Christ, people become rich in the only wealth that counts, the wealth of generosity, the wealth which cascades from Christ into the lives of believers and on into patterns of mutual generosity. Who's the wealthiest person in the world today? Is it Donald Trump? Maybe not. Maybe there's a Forbes rich list, isn't there, that tells you who's the, who's, who are the top ten wealthiest people in the world? Well, we have a different answer to that question because we have a different definition of wealth. Wealth in the Christian tradition means generosity. To ask who's the richest person in the world is to ask who's the most generous person in the world. And that might or might not be Bill Gates with his huge funds because probably isn't. Because the giving he gives is not half as sacrificial as the giving of most poor Christians in the majority world, in the majority church. I can guarantee that the richest person in the world is somebody you've never heard of, and I've never heard of. It's somebody nobody really notices. But the way that they give what little they have is the wealth that Christ recognizes. So here are three ways in which giving to the poor is important for us, important for who we are. It's a way of expressing this unusual self-conscious ethos, Christian ethos of hyper-generosity. It's a way of reflecting a deep suspicion we should have about wealth as an investment in this world. And it connects us at the deepest level, to the generosity of God, and especially to the generosity of God in Christ. Extreme poverty and extreme inequality are ubiquitous. They've always been there in history, and they're there for us today. And in the past, as today, the rich show a remarkable capacity to ignore this fact, to block out the presence of the poor, and to focus on their own interests and concerns. The early Christians, and we learn from them, did not ignore poverty. They took its reality into the heart of their churches and into the heart of their practice. At the first ever Christian conference, Paul said, I was asked to remember the poor. I was very glad to do so. As you may know, one of Pope Francis's advisors whispers to him every time he steps out into the public domain, remember the poor. To remember the poor was not just an early passing phase in Christianity. This memory worries us. It unsettles us. And it should inspire us to sometimes extraordinary feats of generosity. Why? Because in giving, we find that we become most fully Christian, most truly ourselves. Thanks be to God.